Well, uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I just feel so very tethered, so very dependent upon the Lord and His Spirit today, uh, just for life and breath. That, that should always be how we operate, but I just feel the need as we're approaching the Holy Scriptures, just, just to bow our heads and hearts one more time before the Lord and ask Him for His help specifically for the task before us. Would you, would you join me? Almighty God, Sovereign Lord, Gracious Father, we come to you now with thankful hearts, really with expectant hearts, because we know, Lord, that you are on the throne, risen, victorious, all-powerful, every, every authority laid at your feet to do what you will. And we pray now that as your people, that you would, as we've sung, fix our eyes on you, that you would turn them and open them to behold your glory and beauty. Lord, with the scriptures open this morning, we desire to grow in your grace, and we just plead for, for your help. We need your spirit, Lord, to help us discern the things that are, that are only spiritually discerned. Lord, guard us from pride and presumption. Would you keep us, would you keep me from error, and, uh, and guide us in your truth. We need you, Lord, and we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite matchups of all time is the epic battle between Gideon's meager band of 300 men. If you've heard the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7, that, that story of his meager band pitted against the teeming hordes of the entire Midianite army, all 135,000 of them strong. I mean, talk about a mathematical anomaly. The odds in that fight are hard just to even wrap your minds around, and so um, maybe a visual will help. All things considered relatively equal, this is a fair fight. 1v1, you've got one soldier on your side versus one soldier on the enemy's side. But that was not Israel's reality in the days of the judges and specifically under Gideon's uh, tenure. This is how they started out. The Israelites represented, I think that's red. My colorblind eyes see something else, but uh, right there in the middle, it was one Israelite soldier for every four Midianite soldiers. There were 32,000 Israelites in, in the army compared to the 135,000 of their enemy. That's not so great. Would you agree? I mean, if you're like walking down a dark alley and it was like one before, um, I don't know, maybe you got some crazy jujitsu skills or something, but like th those odds are not in your favor. Sam's like, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, one, one before, the, not looking really great for the Israeli army. And then God tells them before the battle, hey, if anyone is scared, go ahead, leave. And guess what happened? Most of them did. Because they're rational human beings with the same skin on as, uh, as you and I had. Most of them, looking at odds like this, said, man, I am not signing up for this suicide mission. And two-thirds of them left. 22,000 of the 32,000 left the battlefield that day. Uh, so now Israel's got 10,000 remaining troops 
compared to the countless hordes of the Midianites. The new odds, if you are you know, a math person and you need some help here, are 13 to 1. This is the new reality, Israel versus her enemies. God's assessment, still too many. And after a, uh, a famous water test, and again, you can read about this all in Judges chapter 7, how many, if you're familiar with the story, does God leave his people with to fight? That's right, Three, 300, 300 men in the Israelite army versus 135,000. Again, if you're keeping stats, the Israeli army is now less than 1% of its original size. They've gone to 32,000 to 300, which now means that there is 450, there are 450 Midianite soldiers for every one Israelite soldier. Can you see the little red guy in the middle? Maybe not, even from your seat. For every one of God's people in this fight, there are 450 foes. Just bottom line it, God's math is sometimes a little scary, isn't it? In no parallel universe does this ever work. And yet, in those days, the Lord of hosts showed himself mighty to save. And he wrought a great victory for his people and for, for his glory. It's an amazing story, really. 450 to 1 odds, and God says, ain't no thing, and wins, wins the day. Well, the story, the account that we're going to look at this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Luke makes this face-off seem kind of like a cakewalk. This morning, we're going to look at Legion versus Lord. And it's important, I think, that you, you get what a legion is even before we read the text so you can appreciate what's going on, this, this showdown that's about to take place here in Luke 8. That word legion is actually a technical term. It's a term used to describe the largest unit of the Roman Empire's military machine. In terms of numbers, a legion could be as many as 6,000 soldiers, but that number could sometimes vary. So, so all you need to know for today's purposes is that a, reg, a legion, excuse me, represents a massive military force. We're talking about thousands of troops. And what we're about to see go down as we read in Luke chapter 8 this morning is a legion of demons facing off against the Lord Jesus himself. Think about those odds. An army versus one man. This, this is 450 to 1. Not great odds. I don't even know how you would represent 6,000 to 1. You can't like get enough dots on the screen. And yet the truth is, that legion, well, they didn't stand a chance, did they? Not against this man. And as we'll soon see, the demons know it. They know their toast. So let's, let's read the account together here in Luke chapter 8. We're beginning in verse 26. If you're using our church Bible, it's found on page 813, Luke, six, uh, excuse me, Luke 8, beginning in verse 26. The account of Jesus v. Legion. Luke 8, 26. This is the word of the Lord. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered into him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what happened, And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country to the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Wow. Well, this incident takes place on the other side, that is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. We see a majority of the earthly ministry of Jesus in the three years where his public ministry was grounded took place, most of it, there in the region of Galilee, but mostly on the western side, on the edge that was more squarely in the territory of his countrymen, the Jews. This is the area on the eastern side of the sea, often called the Decapolis, the Ten cities, and it was a predominantly non-Jewish area. You're cued off by that, by the pigs that were being raised in that area. Now, keep in mind, you, you got to have this squarely fixed in your brain as, as you get to this account, I think, what had literally just happened on this same very sea. Benjamin preached last week about a, a violent storm. Just look a verse before this violent storm that, that cropped up on the Sea of Galilee, threatening to break up the boat that they're sailing on. And what's Jesus do? Oh, tough crowd this morning, man. What's Jesus do? He speaks. That's it. Words. He, he speaks to the winds and the waves, and apparently they remember his voice, you know, the same voice that spoke them into existence. And immediately, the wind and the waves obey. Now, take a gander back. I want you to look at it here, at the verse immediately before our account today. Look at verse 25 in Luke chapter 8. 
What was the disciples' response to this harrowing near-death experience on the Sea of Galilee? Well, two things, if I can distill it down to two. The first thing was fear, just sheer dread. At the end of the account, the disciples are almost more scared of Jesus than they were of the sea. Fear, and then a lingering question we see repeated over and over throughout Luke's gospel. Who is this? Who is this that even the the wind and the waves obey him? I want you to take note of those two things. Fear and this question, who is this? Because both those things are going to be echoed in our account with uh, the demoniac here in our account today. Helpful note, by the way, both of the other synoptic gospels, we've been talking about the first three gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often called the synoptics because they share a similar structure and content. Uh, well, we're here in Luke, but, but Matthew and Mark also record this event, and we can draw from those accounts to give a little bit more color to what happened here in the text, and we will as we go along. So, so immediately, I, get, I want you to get this picture. They're, they're like stepping off off the boat from the Sea of Galilee on the other side, Jesus had, had just calmed the raging sea with his voice. I'm wondering if the disciples are still like shaken like a leaf as they step out onto to land in the Decapolis. And what meets them there is yet another terrifying sight. This is manifest in a very different form. Uh, Mark's account actually tells us that this demon-possessed man had seen Jesus coming, so he runs to meet him and flings himself down at the feet of the Lord. Now, think about the level of degradation we're talking here with this demon-possessed man. I mean, this is a human being. The crowning jewel of God's creation, a, a man made in the very image of God himself. And yet here it's hard to even imagine a more wretched specimen. He wore no clothes, and he hadn't for a long time, verse 27 tells us. He didn't live in a house, but, but among the tombs. And it calls to mind Proverbs 8.36, All who hate me love death. By the way, it's because I probably haven't ruffled enough feathers yet this week, I'm just going to... Lightning quick application here, Christians, as we're thinking about death and life, light and darkness, I just want to remind you, a pastoral reminder this morning, that death is the enemy, not a friend. So can we stop with the skulls, like for real, on our shirts and on our skin, We are not as the people of Jesus, people of the light, people marked for life to be celebrating death. That's not the the emphasis of of the passage here, but what we see is a man living, not among the living, but among the dead, celebrating death and dwelling there. That's not to be the lot of the children of light. Back to our text. This this guy's not just dark. He's also violent. We see in Matthew and Mark's account that this guy poses significant danger to the community. Matthew 8, 28 says, He was so fierce that no one could even pass that way. 
And, and this guy embodied an otherworldly type of strength. He would break the bonds and shackles that were used to subdue him, verse 29. Mark's account even tells us that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, otherworldly strength, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And to top it all off, this poor wretched man was subject to great oppression and even self-mutilation again mark tells us night and day he among the tombs and mountains was always crying out and cutting himself with stones you would suspect that wouldn't you of the enemy the enemy and his minions who hates god and and human beings made in his very image like nothing more than to mar and deface us made in the image of God. You're getting a sense, church, for just how pitiable, just how wretched and marred this sad man's life had become. And as we keep reading, we get the reason for his wretched state revealed. Look at verse 30 with me, Luke 8, 30. Jesus then asked him, what's your name? And he says, what? Legion. For many demons had entered him, and and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Legion, that's the name. Now remember, there were up to 6,000 Roman troops in a legion. That's where that word comes from. And quite literally, I think we can see here, embodied in this man, an army of evil inside. We read... Earlier in the chapter, the beginning of chapter 8, that Mary Magdalene, you'll remember her, we were introduced to her a few verses back, she had been delivered of seven evil spirits. Well, this guy's next level, right? He's got an army of evil indwelling him. This man is absolutely subsumed by demonic power. He's got thousands, literally thousands of spirits controlling him like a puppet on a string. And yet, this devastating legion of evil who has rendered this man so helpless is actually on the defensive here, isn't it? What are they doing? What are these demons doing to Jesus in verse 31? Well, they're asking him a question. More specifically, they're begging him. Lots of begging in this passage, isn't there? Specifically, they're begging him not to command them to go into the abyss. That's an interesting word. That word abyss is the same Greek word used in the book of Revelation to describe a bottomless pit. You know, there is an abyss that God has marked for the forces of evil, and particularly these demons. They know that they're bound for it someday. By the way, I think it's interesting to note that the demons here in Luke 8, so far, I think, are the most theologically on point of anyone we've encountered thus far. Three things the demons know. Now, we could, we could go deeper than this, but just for, for sake of time. Three things that the demons know absolutely on point theologically. First, the demons know who Jesus is. What do they call him? The Son of the Most High God. Look at verse 28. They know exactly 
who Jesus is. They also, number two, clearly understand that Jesus has supreme power over them. They come begging, imploring him. Not only do they know that he has the power to cast them out, he has the power to determine where they go. Even the devil is God's devil. He is supreme over all things. Again, I think one of the, one of the uh, tragedies of our uh, theology as we think about uh, Christianity and the West and how watered down it's become is, is this notion almost that, that God is, is, is kind of like Satan's counterpart. Right? Like there's one, maybe God's just a little bit stronger, like 51%, and then Satan's 49%, like this yin and yang thing. There's an army of evil inside this man. Jesus, God the Son, shows up, and they are quaking. They are begging him. He calls the shots. He says where they go and what they do. And there's nothing they can do but to obey. The demons know who he is. They understand that he's supreme. And listen, they know the end, don't they? They understand where this thing is headed. They know that they're headed for final judgment and torment in the abyss. Should remind us of what James says. You remember James' words in James 2.19. Even the demons believe in God, that he's one, that he's triune, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Even the demons believe and what? Shudder. They quake. After all, these are fallen angels. That's what demons are, fallen angels. They've seen Jesus, the eternally existing son, the second eternal member of the triune Godhead. They know exactly who this guy is. No wonder they're terrified. They say, don't torment us, Jesus. Don't send us to the abyss. Matthew's account adds, before the appointed time. There is a time that's been appointed Now, let's pull up for air for just a moment and think about some applications. What what does this account 2,000 years ago have to do to us? How can we be not just hearers of God's word but doers of it? Well, 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 this at least on a high level we should note before we continue that this truth about the demons... And their baseline reality, their their recognition of Jesus' power and authority over them should produce within us, Christian, a deep sense of gospel certainty. Just as the enemy knows he's defeated, so we in Christ should be assured of our final victory in him. There's not a one of us with a spiritual pulse that should be ambivalent to these words this morning. You've either got, as you're thinking about Christ and his authority over all things, you've either got down deep in your soul this sense of gospel certainty, this comfort, this peace, this rising thanksgiving, knowing that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back and he wins, he's won. Or, we think about eternity and its implications. I hope 
you're not deadened, that your conscience isn't seared. Outside of Christ, to consider for just a moment how terrible, how horrific, the the feeling of consternation, of, of conviction that these demons rightly see and feel. You're either for Christ or you're against him. There's no middle ground. And this account reminds us who Jesus is and how very big of a deal it is that we be found in him, covered in his blood. Just a gospel reminder. All right, let's keep, keep tracking through the passage. Let's, let's take a look at verse 32. What, what happens next? The demons are begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss. They say, send us in the pigs, Jesus. Send us in the pigs. Pick it up in verse 32. Now, a large herd of pigs, Mark's gospel tells us there were 2,000 of them approximately. That's a lot of pigs. That's a lot of bacon. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Now, that'll make you think. Why did Jesus grant that request from these demons. The text doesn't give an answer. You could use some conjecture, some sanctified imagination, but he grants them permission, verse 33. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Full disclosure, after reading this part of the text, one of your elders, who will remain nameless, Friendship Community Church, suggested naming this sermon, Wasting bacon. (laughs) See what I got to work with here? (laughs) Wasting bacon. That's pretty good. So, what's up with the pigs? Right? I mean, that's that's pretty curious. What's up with these pigs? Well, the simple answer is, I just want to give you this reminder about God's word and how it functions in our lives as the revelation of God to us. The purpose of God's word is not actually to answer all of our theological queries. The Bible does not exist to answer all your questions. And there is often time, I don't know about you, but there's often times that I'm like, oh, come on, a little more. This is amazing. Give us a little more. God has given us everything sufficient for life and godliness, not everything that we'd like to know necessarily. So I think we need to guard. I mean, we can have some fun thinking about why pigs and what's going down with all these swine, but but we need to guard from the temptation of making this passage too much about that stuff because That's not the point of the passage here, is it? At least not according to the Holy Spirit who led Dr. Luke to write this account. The swine aren't the point. But uh, at least we can draw a few simple observations or simple conclusions from what we see here with these pigs. First off, this massive pork plunge, if I can call it that, clearly shows the power and the extent of Jesus' victory. How many pigs? Well, Luke tells us many. Mark gives us a number. He says approximately 2,000. Have you ever seen a pig? I mean, have you ever seen like 10 pigs? Can you imagine 2,000 pigs? 2,000. And the demons leave a man 
and enter the teeming horde of swines, swine, plural, and careen off a cliff to their watery death. How many demons? Well, we don't know. But they said legion. They said thousands. And there's 2,000 pigs. And wow. If nothing else, on a simple level, this shows us the power and the extent of Jesus' authority over the dominion of darkness. All he had to do was say the word. This also shows us, I think, the value of a single human soul. You know, it was Jesus who said that our lives as image bearers of the Most High God, our lives as human beings, be it a man, a woman, a child, are worth more than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 31. Apparently, sparrows and swine. You know, you could waste a lot of time reading all kinds of ink that's been spilled on this passage. There are some who even presume to say that Jesus must not really be that good, must not be that loving of a Savior, because look at this carnage and death he caused among the poor pigs. I want to be careful to all our animal lovers out there. God has made us as image bearers, as stewards of his creation, to care for the earth. And Scripture is crystal clear that there is a difference. There is a huge chasm of a difference between the animal kingdom and human beings made in God's image. You're worth many, more than many sparrows, God says. Jesus delivers one man and sends 2,000 pigs to their death. And according to him, that transaction was worth it to save one soul bestowed with his very image. Think of the value of human life and dignity. Yes, we should love our pets. Yes, we should care for the world God's given us dominion over. And let's not get ourselves twisted up. Your pets are not your kids. All right, I'm offending way too many people. All right. (laughs) If Luke's gospel hasn't already driven this into your hearts and minds, here's the last simple observation before we finish the passage. There is no one too far gone for God's grace and healing and redemption. Now, we all just sort of nod and say, yes, pastor, I understand that theological box. I've checked it long ago. No one's too far gone for God. But come on now. There are people in your head. There are people that you know that you have written off. And we dare not go there. Reading scripture here in Luke 8. Tell me the one that you've met who's in a worse off position than this guy. Tell me one person you know, even one person that you've read about in the news who lives a more dark and sinister existence than this man. This is as bad as it gets, friends. And at the end of the account, he's seated at Jesus' feet. We'll get there 
in a moment. We dare not climb onto God's throne and presume that before death anyone is too far beyond the reach of God's grace and love and mercy. His arm is not too short to save the demoniac, nor is it the sin-seared soul that you've got in the back of your mind right now. And if you're here today, and you just can't quite fathom how a holy and perfect God could ever reach a point where he could forgive you and bestow his love and mercy upon you, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes this morning to see this man, the testimony of his deliverance, and to believe that God is even God enough to save your soul. All right. Let's look at the response to this phenomenal deliverance. Picking up in verse 34, Luke 8, 34. When the herdsmen, now I would imagine they'd be pretty rattled, right? The herdsmen of those pigs. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So these herdsmen, who are more than just a little freaked out, spread everywhere this news, right? They say, they're, they're like proclaiming this. They're like swine death evangelists. And they're just telling this thing everywhere, in the city and in the countryside. And as people arrive to this grisly scene to see what had happened, they behold something mind-boggling as they reach Jesus. Look at verse 35. What do they see? Well, they see this demoniac, and that's how I've been saying it, demoniac, I think is the right way to say it. Verse 35, seated at the feet of Jesus. Remember now, he hadn't worn clothes for a long time. This man is now clothed, and he is in his right mind. Remember how uncontrollable this guy was? I mean, they, they couldn't even subdue him with chains. And here he is, seated at the feet of Jesus. Now, don't overlook that word, seated. To be seated in a biblical sense is to be in a position of submission. This man is under control. This man is subdued. This man is submissive. He's calm. What the strength of man, even the chains of man, could never do, Jesus does with a word. Amazing. Their response, verse 35, fear. They rightly understand that there is a superior power at work here. And then when they hear the whole story, when they're told how this guy had really been delivered, we get to the most tragic part, I think, of this whole story. And there is a tragic part in this story. Look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that's Jesus, to depart. To depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and obliged. He returned. Are you kidding me? 
How? How could you? Why would you do that? What in the world would possess you? The great deliverer is standing before you. Performing a work of salvation and deliverance that is just inexplicable. And your response is, yeah, Jesus, why don't you just, why don't you go back home? What would possess them to do this? I think the text gives us a clue, a definite clue here in verse 37. Again, they're seized with, now now that they've heard the whole story, it's great fear. It was just phobos before. It was just fear in the Greek. Now it's mega phobos. Now it's great fear. Perhaps it also had something to do, (laughs) I don't know, but perhaps with the sheer financial loss I mean, think about this, guys. Think about the financial hit that this must have been to that community. I've got a friend here in the area who raises pigs, and I, uh, I was texting back and forth with him. He finally just called me and said, this is too complicated. Just talk to me, Zeb. I said, hey, if you were to sell, like, one of your pigs... Like the whole pig. You know how you can buy like a half pig or a whole pig? If you were to sell just one of those things in today's market, just trying to think what this might translate to in 2023, how much would that thing cost? He said, well, I was like, oh, this is more complicated already than I want it to be. Well, if you sell the whole thing wholesale, you can get about a thousand bucks from that pig for its meat. But if I'm selling specific cuts of meat, right, to the the grocery store or to a restaurant, that whole pig is worth a lot more. That same pig could bring in about three grand. Now, do some simple math here. There's 2,000 pigs. I mean, even with a conservative estimate on how much that pig is going to generate in terms of revenue, we are talking about millions of dollars lost that's a lot of bacon millions of dollars lost it begs the question doesn't it what's more significant your money is it your stuff is it financial security this (laughs) some of us this should be hitting a vein or is it the salvation and the deliverance of an eternal soul They wrestled with this just like we do. Consider, just for a moment, friends, how radically things changed for them when Jesus showed up. This is a massive change to their financial reality. And there, certainly, power is exhibited over this demon-possessed man, which, frankly, power that defies explanation. And I'm sure that some of these folks are thinking, if Jesus were to stick around, what change might be next? I mean, would it be my family? Would it be my business? Would it be my future? Let's just think about life in society today. Isn't this same thing what keeps some people from Christ? This question, what might I lose? What might have to change about my life if Jesus remains? 
Because wherever Jesus is, he calls the shots. Jesus is Lord of your life. He's not going to sit politely in a corner. He calls the shots. If Jesus really has this kind of authority, there is no telling what he might say. There's no telling what he might do. And if your, char, if your goal, friend, is to be in control of your life, then walking with Jesus is a very dangerous proposition because Jesus changes everything. You might be able to handle a Jesus who gives some minor course corrections to your life here and there, but a Jesus who comes into your life like a wrecking ball and totally rearranges everything, priorities and resources and time. Well, some people rationalize, then as now, maybe it'd just be better for this Jesus to take his life-altering power somewhere else. How very sad, how tragic that people would shun the saving, redeeming, restoring presence of the Savior, and yet it happens all the time. One more plot twist here as we near the end. There is one guy who doesn't want Jesus to leave, right? The man who's been delivered, this demoniac, we don't even get his name. I wish we knew his name. He begs Jesus. We just see all this begging in this text. Everybody knows Jesus is in charge. He begs Jesus to go with him. And Jesus' answer is, actually, no. Now, isn't that fascinating? Hold on. Is Jesus being mean? Is Jesus being withholding? way i mean look at his higher purpose for this guy look at verse 38 luke 8 38 the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him but jesus sent him away saying return to your home he's been living in the tombs naked return to your home and declare how much god has done for you and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much jesus had done for him. Jesus gives this man, friends, a glorious no. Instead of coming with him, Jesus' command is stay. Again, this is a higher commission. You see, Jesus has work for this guy to do. He's been a Christian for like, what, minutes? And Jesus puts his hand to the till. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Live a transformed life in the context where you've been planted. Now, isn't that a little interesting? Where was he planted? Well, among all those people who had just told Jesus to leave, right? Weren't his friends and neighbors and family members the ones who had just told Jesus to get out of here? Yeah, but doesn't that illustrate even more grace on the part of our God? A few weeks back, we were talking about Jesus and the parable of the sower. And we gawked at the goodness of God who even has the power to change bad soil and make it good soil. So we see 
happening here. That's what we pray for, I hope. That's what you pray for. That's what we pray for here at FCC at Friendship. Pleading with the Lord for our family, standing in the gap, living out the gospel in our own broken way, asking for the Holy Spirit to use even our shaky hands and knees to demonstrate to the watching world that Jesus is indeed mighty to save. One life at a time. Jesus, by the way, crossed the Sea of Galilee for one man, right? He steps out of the boat, the demon, the, the demonic meets him on the shore, performs this one miracle. Everybody shows up. They say, get out of here, Jesus. He says, all right. And he gets back in the boat and leaves. He made that trip for one man, one life at a time. Jesus is mighty to save, and we trust him with the results. This is, this is fun. He, right at the very end, look at verse 39. This is so fun to me. Jesus tells him, hey, go home and declare to everybody how much God has done for you. What's he do? Well, he goes throughout the whole region proclaiming how much Jesus has done for him. Don't you love that? Because Jesus' power is God's power. That's the testimony of Scripture. Jesus is God, very God, truly God, truly man. He's Lord, and he is worthy of our worship. I want to close here with with two quick application points. There's the text in front of us. What do we do about it? Two quick things. One thing, please... Friendship Community Church, be reminded as we read through this beautiful truth in Scripture that not all believers are called to serve Jesus in the same way. Jesus calls some to go. Jesus calls others to stay. And even among those who he calls to go or to stay, he gives them different assignments. The classic example of this, I I love it. At the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus gives Peter some pretty hard news. He tells him that he's going to die for his faith. When he's an old man, someone's going to stretch out his arms and lead him somewhere he doesn't want to go. You know what Peter does? He looks at his buddy John and says, What about him, God? Jesus' gracious but firm answer is, That's none of your business, Peter. I will do with him what my sovereign prerogative chooses. God doesn't give all his children the same assignment. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that diversity within the body of Christ so beautiful? Jerry's sitting right here. I I always look at Jerry. He's just so helpful around the church, uh, always available to do something, kind of chip in. And I think his wheelbarrow is sitting in our storage thing out there that I didn't use for a project I thought I would do. But I'm always joking with him because I got like two left thumbs, and, and yet God's given him the gift of service. And he uses it for the glory of Christ constantly. I love that. We need that here. We need people right now at this very moment crawling on the ground with our toddlers, singing them songs, sharing the gospel with them. We need people up here singing and leading us to proclaim the excellencies of Christ through music. We need people 
helping with evangelism and outreach and just pick your ministry. Come on now. God doesn't give us all the same thing to do. Isn't that beautiful? And lastly here, I know this is simple, but it bears mentioning. I think we see in this text the power of testimony at work. The power of testimony. Jesus said, go home and just shine the light that I've given you. Go home and and tell people what God has graciously done for you. Testimony is a very powerful thing, friend. Some people who are so turned off to the things of the Lord will never listen to you preaching at them. Never darken the door of a church, but, but there are people who just by virtue of your relationship with them will listen to your story, will listen as you share with them the difference that, that Christ has made in your life as you imperfectly, albeit imperfectly, begin to live out the gospel in front of them. I'm not saying you don't need to share the, the word with them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. What I am saying is, Your testimony matters. Don't sell yourself short. Continue to, (laughs) I think it was, was it last week? Benjamin preaching about the the lamp being hid under a bushel basket. And let that thing shine. Just like this guy here, who was like zero minutes old as a Christian, who Jesus commissioned him to demonstrate his grace to the world around this is, this is the life of a Christian where God has planted us, regardless of the gifts he's given or the commission that he's called, the specific road that he puts us on, to live it out by the power of his spirit. And, and that's why we're going we're gonna to end here after our final prayer with this refrain in song, how great is our God. This, that was the cry of the demoniac. That was the cry. Hey, I'm just going to tell everybody how great, how kind, how loving our God is and what he's done for me. It's the refrain that says, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Let's finish Friendship Community Church singing that with all our heart and soul together for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we pray this morning, this this rainy July morning, that we would take heart, that we would take encouragement, that you would give us courage and perspective to walk in your grace, to shine the light that Christ has given to us. Like this Lost and pitiful man, we, we too recognize that we were in sin, that we were hellbound, that we were far from you, deserving, justly deserving of your punishment and your wrath. And yet in Christ, you've shown us your grace and mercy. Lord, make us a people, make us a happy people who share your light and who proclaim through our family, through our schools, through our workplace, how great. Thou art, in Jesus' name, amen.